Just a quick note before we dive into the episode. This episode was not recorded in a controlled environment. The room has a bit of an echo, a plane flew overhead, and there was a very cute, very hyper kitten. I fixed what I could in editing, and in the future, we'll work to better control the recording environment anytime we record at Gigi's house. Oh, and if you're interested, tune in after the outro music for rambling tangents that hit the cutting room floor. Thanks for listening. Greetings, Gothamites. Lane here. Welcome to Book One, Episode One of Batman Books, The Dark Knight in Prose. Today we'll be talking about the prologue and the first two chapters of the 1989 novelization of Batman, written by Craig Shaw Gardner. And today's a special episode. Um, not only are we getting into our first book, but I'm here with my good friend. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is JG, and uh, hi. <laughs> JG, we all call him Jeej. So what's your relationship with Batman? Tell us about how he's in your life. Batman is kind of always been in my life. It started off with Batman 66. I remember watching that. And then right around uh, 1987 was when I started collecting comic books. I remember going to the secondhand store and getting a pile of comics. Of course, there was, you know, Superman's pretty abundant. And I got some of his comics. But the secondhand store, I picked up a couple of detective comics. I mean, nice. probably late 60s, early 70s, just like two. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's more than I did. <laughs> yeah. And I never bought a lot of Batman. I'm not going to lie. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm a casual Batman fan. That being said, two of my favorite writing mediums are Pulp Adventure and Noir Fiction. Oh, Noir, yes. And they kind of run hand in hand to a certain extent. They were usually of the same time period, that 20s, 30s, and 40s, like right in there. The Detective Comics and Batman was just kind of always right there. One thing I really enjoy about Batman is the detective aspect of Batman. Like I said, I like noir fiction. A lot of modern portrayals of Batman, he punches things a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, just look at the the uh, Christian Bale movies. Sure, Christian Bale detects things, mm-hmm. but... He detected his fist going in your face. Yeah, there's a whole lot of him just beating the living snot out of people, which, of course, Bruce Wayne does do that, mm-hmm. especially in the comic books, but he don't, he does it as a means to an end. It's mm-hmm. not just him going out and just being like, I have to get to him and I'm going to plow through. I think that's why th- the fact that he's human and doesn't have superhuman powers is part of his appeal to so many people because, you know, he wasn't bitten by a radioactive spider. He's not from a different planet. He's just a guy who happens to be filthy stinking rich and he puts that wealth to good use. He likes to say that every now and again. What's your superpower? I'm rich. <laughs> Still a good line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that that's that's one of the reasons I really like Batman. And um the early Batman movies, like once Tim Burton got a hold of it, this eighty nine movie, he definitely flexes that detection kind of aspect of his personality. You know, at the time when I saw, you know, I was just a little kid, so I didn't realize that, you know, this is the first time we really saw a, a non-campy Batman in visual medium. Like, yeah, I mean, like, we went from Batman 66, you know, Adam West and Burt Ward to uh, this. Yes. Which was, it's like flipping the lights off. Definitely. The Batman 66 movie um, came, like... Yes, it was a comedy. Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Robin, pass me my <laughs> shark repellent. My shark repellent. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I mean, that's where that that movie became more endearing is mm-hmm. the fact that they were they had a small budget but they were trying to make the best batman 66 movie which was based on a comedy but they they did the best that they could with what they had and it's a great flick i mean mm-hmm. it's a good popcorn movie it's fun. and it it, it it supplements the tv show just perfectly it's great yeah. i mean for what that show was which you know we all like a bit more of our our serious batman i like a bit more serious batman but if i'm in the mood man bring on the atom West. Yes. <laughs> Bring it on. So even though uh, I think Tim Burton kind of took quite a bit of liberty with the uh, with some of the things that happened, which at the time I didn't know. Like I didn't know that the Joker didn't kill his parents. Batman. I like. I enjoyed it. I never mm-hmm. got elbow deep into it, but I always enjoyed it. All right. So because this is the first episode about the book, I'm going to give a little information about the author. I'm pulling the information from Wikipedia and from the author's own websites, and I'll put those links in the show notes. Uh, Craig Shaw Gardner was born July 2nd, 1949, but he was raised in Greece, New York, a suburb of Rochester. Um, Here's a blurb from his website uh, that kind of amused me. So, my neighborhood in Greece was called Coda Vista because at the back of the development, you could see Kodak, a.k.a. the Eastman Kodak Company, which was where my father worked. Much worse, when the wind was right, you could smell Kodak. Specifically, you could smell the distillation product industries, a division of Kodak whose sole purpose appeared to be making noxious-smelling chemicals so we might get a whiff of them in my neighborhood. When in my later life, if I grow a second head, I will know where it came from. I kind of like his sense of humor. And it's kind of interesting because like in this book, they're talking about a, a, the access chemical. So that kind of, like, that's, a, that's an interesting tie-in. It kind of shows you how uh, the area that you grow up in can influence yeah. your writing. Yeah, and I... First year of college, um, I was a photo lab assistant, and those chemicals are pretty pretty strong. Uh, so Gardner is an American author best known for producing fantasy parodies similar to those of Terry Pratchett, which kind of caught my interest. In the past, he has gone by a couple pseudonyms, Peter Garrison and Chris Blaine. And you might like this, Jeej. Uh, there's a list of his other novelizations. He novelized The Lost Boys. Interesting. Wishbringer, uh, Batman, of course. Back to the Future, parts two and three. Batman Returns, The Seventh Guest, and Leprechauns. Well, he just had a thing in the mid to late 80s, didn't he? Uh Uh-huh. And then he has a few licensed books that are not based on films. He's got The Batman Murders from 1990. Okay. Spider-Man Wanted Dead or Alive from 1998. Return to Chaos, which is a Buffy novel from 1998. I'm sold. Yeah. Dark Mirror, it's is an angel novel, 2004. And Battlestar Galactica, The Cylon Secret in 2006. When I saw this man's list, I'm like, how have I not heard of him before? He is geek. He is our people. All those book novelizations. I'm honestly surprised they sell as many of those as they do. I just kind of was like, well, it's just a novelization of something I've already seen. Right. I want something more original. That's the way I always kind of looked at novelizations. Mm-hmm. That's how I did in the past, too. The thing to notice about novelizations, because like you at first, I'm like, oh, I've already seen it. Why do I want to read a book about it? The thing about novelizations is that the writer can give insight into the person's head things they feel things they smell things they so it kind of gives an added layer 
year. So I was a little worried about Mr. Gardner because his first website hasn't been updated since 2006. But then I saw that he moved over to WordPress and posted as recently as October 2018. So we can go ahead and get into the, the prologue and then we'll throw a promo break between there and the chapters. Okay. Instead of talking about the entire chapter, I'll just talk about scenes. And so I'll synopsize the scene and then we'll just discuss it briefly and then go on to the next scene. The little blurb on the back of the book says, They don't know who he really is. They never know where he'll show up. But the citizens of Gotham City know they have a protector. He's the Cape Crusader with an arsenal of amazing weaponry and a repertoire of incredible acrobatics. I think they're thinking of Robin there. Uh, He's the legend they call Batman. In the toxic brew of big city corruption, a bone-white, green-haired, eternally grinning thing is born. His name is the Joker. His lust is for all the wealth, power, and revenge he can grab from the world. And in the timeless, violent war between criminal and crime fighter, Batman versus the Joker will be the ultimate duel. So, quick note on that. I, I Again, I'm far from a, an expert, but it feels like they didn't quite capture the Joker. Like, they kind of lost me when they said he's, his lust is for wealth and power and revenge. I don't... He's just a psychopath, isn't he? Well, that's the thing. Joker, at least... Okay, when it comes to... few episodes into this podcast, we are going to be a bit more well-versed in, yeah. in, this, in the Batman-type universe. But from what I gather, and I am familiar with the killing joke, I'm familiar with uh, quite a few storylines. Joker is, he has no rhyme or reason. Sure, he does steal money, but I mean... But then he's also like just as likely to throw it you know, out is. the window. He's insane. That's one of the keys to the Batman universe is that a lot of these people are insane. I mean, sure, you know, you've got your uh, Raza ghouls that are purpose-driven. I but, love that you pronounce his name the same way I do. But, you know, they're purpose-driven. And the Joker, A, is supposed to be more of an enigma, like a force. That's the Riddler. <laughs> I knew you. I knew. I thought of that last night, and I knew you were going to say that. <sighs> Should have seen the eye roll I got. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, uh, he's he's a force of nature. He, he's more of that. He's just, he's like, uh, you know, a roll of the dice in Vegas where the dice are never going to win. I think that's probably why he's such the, the perfect arch nemesis of Batman, because Batman is all logic and order. Mm-hmm. And the Joker is zero logic and chaos. So they are like... Yeah. Opposite ends of the of the spectrum. So, I, and I think that's the way they are. Well, maybe not originally, but that was the that's the way that the writing eventually became. They're polar opposites: mm-hmm. logic versus chaos. And the writing of this script by Sam Hamm. He, he didn't get that. I'm pretty sure they signed Nicholson before or maybe during the writing. So mm-hmm. they wrote the role for Nicholson. We all love that Joker. But at the same time, is it correct to the comic books? And I, I think uh, Tim Burton might have a lot to do with that, too. Kind of like the direction. So there are a lot of a lot of spoons in this pot, if that's the, the correct metaphor. But that's Hollywood in general. Yeah. Nowadays nerds rule and we kind of we get a little more uh, true story with our our comics like if it's canon in the comics they're not going to mess with that too much nowadays but it's taken us what 30 years to get to that point of people yeah and the same thing with books as well you can kind of use your own imagination and fill in there's no cgi budget in your imagination and sometimes that makes it all the more rich for it lacking pictures i have a firm dislike of cgi as the main tool exactly not as an enhancer Mm -hmm. i'm fine with it as an enhancer i agree like uh the first teenage mutant ninja turtles movie amazing because they use animatronics yeah and it was great the new one (sighs) 
We'll, we'll not talk about that. That's sighing and nodding my head. Yeah. Well, let's get into this prologue. Yeah, let's do that. So I'm going to read the first paragraph of the chapters, I think. So the prologue sets up the feel of Gotham City nicely, I think. It was a night like any other in the city, too hot, too humid, too loud. The sound of music mixed with car horns and laughter and the occasional scream. The streets swarmed with life, ten times as busy now that the sun was gone, and the scum of night could crawl from their holes, like roaches who needed the darkness to feed. I almost think the uh, prologue explains Gotham better than the movie does. Yeah, like I was saying before, like it, with novelizations, you can kind of get into like, oh, it's too hot and it's too humid. So you don't get that in film. And you, you can get characters reacting to like, oh, it's hot, like I'm sweating. But that's one thing I like about prose is it, it kind of just puts it in there and you you're in there. It sets the mood up. This just really hammers home the feel of Gotham. Something we talked about before we started recording is that neither one of us has seen the 89 Batman movie in years. And I was kind of going back and forth between should I watch it or should I not? And I, I leaned toward not. That way I could see how much of the movie the uh, this book kind of brings back. And it, it's kind of me reading it from a book perspective and not a book about a, no, about a movie perspective. I have an idea. What's that? Once we finish the book, we should watch the movie and just... Do commentary? Do commentary on yeah. that. I think that'd be fun. So, here's the, the synopsis. A man, woman, and their 12-year-old son, little Jimmy, have taken a wrong turn after leaving the theater and quickly find themselves wearing targets on their backs, as it is all too obvious that they have money and are lost. The wife asks her husband why can't they just get a taxi, and Harold is annoyed to the point of anger and snaps that he is trying to find a taxi. However, the three cabs that they did see did not stop, not in this neighborhood. During this, little Jimmy frowns at a map he has pulled from his back pocket. And when he realizes the mistake, he, in he informs his parents that they are going the wrong way. It is not the eastern shore that worries me. A shadow under threat has been growing in my mind. And like Legolas, uh, they don't listen to him. Why doesn't that surprise me? Uh, worried that the map will make them look like tourists, Harold orders his son to put the map away. Harold leads his family toward a pair of cops, but when he realizes the cops are too busy chatting and laughing with a 14-year-old hooker, he decides it would be best to admit defeat and instead that they should cut over to 7th to try to get a cab there. Jimmy, who has been yanked away from the child hooker, after, which is a phrase I didn't think I'd be saying, after sharing a small smile with her, tries again to tell his parents that 7th is the other way. Of course, Harold doesn't want to admit that he's wrong, and he leads his family down a dark street that isn't much more than an alley, because, of course, that's going to be a good idea. It doesn't take long for them to be jumped by two thugs, one of whom wears an I Love Gotham City t-shirt, and I totally want that. Uh, Harold is knocked unconscious, and his wife and son watch helplessly at gunpoint while the thugs go through his pockets. So that's the first little scene of the prologue, and I don't think it's by accident that it kind of really harkens back to Bruce Wayne's origin story. Way to take the words right <laughs> out of my mouth. I feel, <laughs> like, I feel like this is a recurring theme. You get up, you go to work, you do the chores around whatever business you work at. That's kind of the way that a, a family walking down an alley gets mugged in Gotham. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how that is. Yeah, I think that I was just kind of sitting in an alley and wait, especially in the theater district where they're they're apparently they're going to get lost there. I don't think the Waynes were lost, 
I think it was just a bad situation. It was, but I mean, it was a similar situation to every other mugging that's ever happened, except that one went really, really raw. Yeah. And here, I think it, it doesn't seem like anyone lost their lives, just some, some cash. And that's, that's the thing that I, I, that I think later Batman writing loses is the fact, like, the the mystery and fear behind the, the, like his ninja esque vigilanteism, mm-hmm. like in this, they're just absolutely terrified. Which I loved. Yeah, it's fantastic. Like, and he he's it, it. Everyone's just like, oh, fear the bat. It's some people don't believe he actually exists, and other people, you know, are like, oh, I don't want to get attacked by him, and people think he's crazy. But and as we get into the first or to the end of this this prologue. People actually think he could be like a supernatural being a la the Mothman or something like that. Which, yet another uh, fantastic Batman villain uh, is Mobius. Is it Killer Moth? Mobius might be Marvel. No, no, there's a vampire in the Batman oh. universe. Uh-huh. You see him in the Arkham games. Oh, I haven't, I haven't caught that yet. Yeah, yeah. There, so there, there's a literal Batman. <laughs> and there's Man Bat. They throw a Man Bat in there, but I've not well, read. We will become more familiar with these. Yeah. These villains. A lot of these villains are um, household names anymore. But you know, some of the smaller ones and oddball ones, like Firefly. Firefly was great in the Arkham. Yeah, uh, Arkham Origins. Like I'm like Anarchy. Yeah, and, and like unless you're. A Batman aficionado, you're not going to probably know those mm-hmm. types of villains, like that that B level of villain. Was it in Arkham City where uh, Robin comes in to bring something to Batman, and that's the first time I, I Robin like okay when I was a kid and saw the Batman '66 show, I had the biggest little girl crush on Burt Ward. Like I I, I can't even tell you. Other than that. I've always been the type who kind of likes, likes Batman as a solo character, even though he he always has Alfred, you know, on his intercom there to help him. So he, Batman's never been solo. But the more I learn about Robin. Dick Grayson yeah. and Damien and Jason, Jason Todd, Jason Todd, and there's a short-lived uh, female Robin. I can't remember her name. But the more I learn about Robin and Nightwing, the more I love Nightwing. Yeah, I felt like that was the better evolution. And I've been learning a lot about uh, Barbara Gordon as Batgirl. Batgirl and Oracle from Stella's podcast, which I'll promo in here. So, I, I, just to touch on yeah. Robin, I don't, I don't feel that they've ever gotten Robin right in any show ever. No, oh, in the, in the, um, was it Batman v Superman where Bruce Wayne is in the Batcave and he glimpses Robin's costume? I wonder which Robin that was. I'm, I, I'm. I'm wondering if oh that's oh it's good yeah yeah <laughs> I yeah. really hope they they do it well, you know what we'll have to like we're gonna stay on task but what like when we get upwards to Batman v Superman that's an analysis for a different day yeah okay so the next scene of the prologue uh, can, follows the two thugs named Nick and Eddie. And they make their way to their safe space, the rooftop of a six-story building. There, they open the wallet to see what they scored, and this is where the American Express plug makes its appearance. All right, American Express. Don't leave, leave home, home without it. <laughs> you know Batman is in the shadows watching this. I wonder how many times he just rolls his eyes. Like, does he have, <laughs> I wonder if he has eye strain rolling his eyes from the shadows. <laughs> like, oh my god, I can smell the poor on you from here. <laughs> That would be the elitist eye roll. <laughs> yeah. 
So Eddie, feeling oddly nervous, suggests to Nick that they find another place. Nick accuses him of being scared of heights, but Eddie, looking into the darkness surrounding them, brings up what happened to Johnny Gobbs. This makes Nick angry, and he says that Gobbs was just drunk and walked off a roof and that it was no big loss. Eddie says, no man, that ain't what I heard at all. I heard the bat got him. So the two go back and forth about whether or not the rumors of the bat's existence and Johnny's having been drained of blood are true when the sound on boots on gravel get their attention. They turn to see something darker than the night, standing on the edge of the roof, walking toward them. Nick fires multiple rounds, but gunfire has little to no effect. The bat closes the distance to Nick, and on its way, passing Eddie, who is too petrified to move. And as the bat walks around him, he delivers a kick that sends Eddie flying into a brick chimney. Sorry, I'm just Eddie's just sitting there doing nothing, and the bat walks by and just kicks him in the face. <laughs> and the, the way it's described in this, I automatically thought of 300. Yeah. This is Gotham! <laughs> Whack! Right in the chest. So Nick decides fight didn't work, so it's time for flight. In a panic, he tries to dart past the bat, who is between Nick and the fire escape. But the bat binds him with a rope or wire, and uh, Nick still tries to crawl away. Don't kill me, Nick pleads, and the bat lifts him from the roof. And when Nick has the courage to open his eyes again, he is being held over the edge of the roof, dangling into space. The bat's first words emerge. You're trespassing, rat breath. Trespassing, Nick asks. You don't own the night. The bat smiles. Tell your friends. Tell all your friends. I am the night. Yeah, who says that Christian Bale didn't read this? Let's see. The bat throws Nick back off onto the rooftop before stepping off the edge. Nick crawls to the ledge, looks over to find that the bat has disappeared. And this is when his nerve breaks and he begins to scream. So that is the prologue. We talked about how the scene kind of harkens back to Bruce Wayne's origin story. And some of the stuff I did remember from the movies as as I was reading it. Mm-hmm. I, I really can't wait to see it again. I definitely want the I Love Gotham City t-shirt. I love the fact they give Batman such mystery in that. Mm -hmm. That's the way this whole book is. I believe a lot of the the beginning stories of Batman that have been put into movies are usually within like the first year of him becoming Batman. Mm -hmm. So the mystery is still there, unlike Batman 66, where it's like, Hey, it's Batman. How's it going, Batman? Sup, dog? Hey, you're parking in the fire lane again in front of City Hall, but that's all right. You know why? Because you're Batman. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, I, I I like that, the, you know, the first year or two of Batman being out there because not a lot of people know, hey, it's Batman. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like horribly frightened of him, yeah. which was part of part of his shtick. Yeah. You know, he's a detective that rules the night through fear. And that they don't see him as a man dressed up as a bat initially. They see him as, no, seriously, what are you? Yeah. Are you are you even human? And which this, the prologue really hammers that point home before we even get into the story. Yeah, I love the bit about the guy being drained of blood. So those are the rumors that are going around. And so we can do a, a promo break here and get into chapter one and two afterward. Hey everybody, this is Steven. And this is Chris. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Is This Adulting? Every week, we're going to sit down to have a discussion about life, culture, our own mental health struggles, and just about anything you can think of. Have you ever wondered which breakfast cereal is the best? Or how to help your friends who are dealing with mental illness? Or why waterbeds were a thing? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then have we got a show for you. We'll be launching on April 6th with new episodes being released every Thursday. 
Until then, you can check us out on Facebook, follow us over on Twitter at isthis__adulting, consider supporting us over on Patreon at patreon.com backslash isthisadulting, or swipe right on Tinder. Nope. Oh, it's... so that's just me then. Well, go ahead and subscribe to the show so you won't miss a single episode of this weird and funny adventure as two overgrown man-children navigate life together. So we'll see you all on April 6th. And remember, kids, be happy, stay healthy, and go hug someone. Because you never know, they might just be starting a podcast. So welcome back to Batman Books, The Dark Knight in Prose. And Gigi and I are getting ready to jump into the first paragraph. So here, chapter one. here is the first paragraph of chapter one. Commissioner Gordon looked out over the crowd. The large hall at the Gotham City Democrats Club was packed. The huge victory banner said it all. Congratulations, a new Gotham City, Harvey Dent, District Attorney. That kind of puts it put it puts things politically in perspective too. I didn't realize that they. Uh, I, I obviously don't remember the backdrops of the movie well enough, but you know him being like the uh, Gotham City Democrats. I mean that. And it's so, hard. That, that's t- a little polarizing right there in the first like yeah. two sentences. But it's hard. It's also like if it's an alternate world, like that's true. Yeah, it, it's hard to tell. Like if you know Democrats or Republicans are the same. But yeah, I noticed that and was like, well, hmm, interesting. Uh, some authors, a lot of authors, will throw in their own little yeah. nuanced beliefs into a story. We don't want to get into that in this podcast. No, yes. but it, yeah, it was it was interesting in. For that being in there, I noticed that as well. So we open with Commissioner Gordon at a victory celebration for the new appointment of Harvey Dent as district attorney. Gordon is jaded enough to know that Dent's youthful ideals likely won't hold up to Gotham City. All of the elite of Gotham are in attendance, all except millionaire Bruce Wayne. And in newer, this is like a side note, newer adaptations, like in, in uh, Arkham City, at the beginning, Bruce Wayne walks by and, and Vicky Vale notes him being a millionaire. And he walks by and says, billionaire, millionaire or so last year. And I think it fits the billionaire status because I think if he were a millionaire, it's a little tiny bit more down to earth. And I think he'd spend most of his money on his gadgets. You can lose millionaire status on a bad weekend in Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact like in 1939, he was marked as a millionaire. That's a whole lot different than a millionaire. A 30s millionaire is the equivalent of a billionaire today. Yeah. So I think the upgrade to billionaire is much more um, on point with how elite he is. Him not being present does that just not scream to you, Batman is watching over everything? My imagination went straight to was, oh, Bruce isn't there? Well, you know he's not sleeping because he probably, this is a guy who probably has, gets two to four hours of sleep a night unless he's been, you know, massively injured. So I'm picturing this new Harvey Dent being brought into the uh, DA office and Batman somewhere monitoring like they can deal without bruce wayne being there for the moment do you watch gotham i have watched a good chunk of gotham i am not caught up on gotham uh, so you've probably seen their harvey dent oh yes he's great i i would i love him as a young harvey dent i think gotham portrays a lot of different aspects of this universe mm-hmm. well but I really like Gotham's um harvey dent because he he's still young he's still just an assistant da and you can see that youthful optimism and the the wide-eyed idealism, but you also see that potential of him snapping. 
Uh, so we're still in Gordon's mind, and his mind wanders while the mayor's speech drones on and on, but his attention snaps back when Mayor, mayor Borg finally starts to introduce Harvey Dent, who takes the stage. Perhaps due to his background in law, Dent is a man of few words, but his words will count, as will his actions. Dent tells the audience that he has spoken that day with Commissioner Gordon. And here's a quote from the book. He is targeting businesses, Dent continued, suspected of fronting for the syndicate in the city. Within one week, we'll knock down their front doors. He paused, his eyes sweeping the crowd, and shed the light of the law on that nest of vipers. So no no pressure there, Commissioner Gordon. He's pretty much saying that, yeah, in a week we're gonna we're gonna take down all the the front businesses for the for the mob. So Harvey Dent really was a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, he definitely and, wanted and, a change. Yeah, he, he wanted he, change and he wanted it fast. I mean, we we all inevitably know where Harvey Dent goes um and <coughs> two face two face and it kind of in just a few sentences shows the character of a man the convictions that he or, you know the, the lengths he's willing to go which also lets you know exactly what kind of a villain two face is gonna yeah be because two face goes to the same you know extremes yeah. and it's kind of a tragic it, it really shows like how how much he did want things to change for the better and how much he wasn't going to back down from uh those who who have been intimidating people in power in the past so it kind of it's kind of a shame so at the end of the of the scene the enthusiastic crowd's attention and unsatisfying roast beef makes gordon wish he could play hooky like wayne yeah we feel you kamish the dinner that, that gordon is eating in this sounds horrid yeah <laughs> gray roast beef Ugh. rubber roast beef yeah the way he explains it yeah so, again, little touches that don't come across in film that uh, the author, Gardner, puts in there that really add another layer of realism to it. Well, and it also shows the kind of character that Gordon has. Gordon does not like the, the frills. He doesn't like the parties. He's a, he's a foot on the ground, just he wants to get the job done kind of guy. He's he, a, he's he, a politician by necessity, not by, by wish. Like he, he's Barely a, necessity. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And really, it's portrayed quite nicely here. Yeah, I agree. And politician as in, like, he's rubbing elbows with politicians, I should say. He's, he's doing what he has to do to get the job done. Right. You can kind of tell that he kind of has some of that wide-eyed optimism that Dent had in his past. Mm -hmm. And he sees that in Dent and recognizes it. So, yeah, I remember the, the scene of the mugging. I remember the little kid trying to tell his dad and mom that they were going the wrong way. I remember the uh, Eddie and what was the other guy's name? The, the two thugs. I remember them meeting Batman. But I, I have Nick, no memory. Nick and Eddie. Nick and Eddie. Yeah. But I have no memory of this dinner for Harvey Dent's um, celebrating his win. So that'll be interesting to look at once you get into. I don't know if I remember this either from the movie, but Either way, I think it's a very telling bit of writing because it really puts everybody like that's the one thing Batman has been good at is the writing. The people who have written for it put everybody in perspective, like right off the bat. Yeah. Like in this one, you you learn what type of man you don't mean. You may not know a lot about Commissioner Gordon, mm -hmm. but you know what kind of person he is yeah. just by the end of this. Exactly. I mean, things like... Um, That's some tight writing right there. Like, he just... Uh, a couple lines and you, you're you in his head. Yeah, yeah. Gordon looked up. His old politician's face graced with a hint of a smile. He learned through the years of public service to keep a pleasant as an expression on his face as possible, no matter what they were having for dinner. That I mean, that's the, the type of... He's a kind of a 
battered, not grizzled, but battered old cop who just who does po- the political parts of this mm-hmm. as a necessity as opposed to want. Whereas right. you learn about the mayor that the mayor is doing this because he wants to be there. Yeah, he wants to be the one in power and whatnot. And Dent wants to make a, you know, he wants to make a big difference in Gotham. He wants to make a, a dent in the crime. Yes. Yeah. Finger guns. Pew, 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 pew. <sighs> yes, <he does. laughs> um, but yeah, I, I also get the feel f- for uh, Gordon, like the, the jaded, um, what's the word I'm looking for? His, his ideals kind of being jaded over the years. You, you can kind of get a sense that he remembers having those ideals if he doesn't exactly still have them. He rem- remembers what it's, what it was like to hope for a better future. I think Gordon really, he, you're right. He, uh, he remembers those ideals he had. He just doesn't know how to get to it now. Mm-hmm. And that's where Batman will eventually play into that because yeah. he's, he sees a way he can get to hit the ends he needs. Judging by the writing here, I'm sure we're going to find out that it makes Gordon a lot happier. Mm-hmm. So new scene. This is where we're introduced to Jack Napier, who is, and at first I, I didn't catch just, that. I, I'm just going to state this before you even read anything. Uh-huh. I have a problem with the guy's name yeah. because I, I'm telling you, I bet they wrote this whole, they wrote the Joker for Jack Nicholson. I bet they signed him to this and they were like, we want Jack Nicholson to play the Joker. We all love that. We love that, but I'm by no means an expert on the Joker, but I'm 90% sure that Jack Napier is not his freaking name. Yeah. <laughs> and it was interesting because I, I didn't catch until later, you know, another moment of brilliance in my hand. That, oh, yeah, Jack is a card, a playing card. So he goes from Jack to Joker. And so before I came over here, I was like, I wonder if Napier ne- means anything interesting. So I looked it up and it just means a napkin maker. I think that's a lost opportunity right there. To, <laughs> but hey, at least it sounds cool. So Jack Napier is looking around the apartment of a model named Alicia Hunt. He regards her belongings as expensive junk, but since she sleeps with him, she at least has good taste in men. And she uh, has a crap personality, I believe. He also <laughs> alludes to in here. So he has a, a, a deck of cards that he always has with him. He's absently shuffling, and he's listening to Dent's speech on the television. And when Dent says... Together we can make this city safe for decent people. Jack mutters that decent people shouldn't live in Gotham. They'd be happier somewhere else. He's not necessarily wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So Alicia, wearing a skimpy black negligee, comments on Dent's tough talk about organized crime and the danger he might pose to a man named Carl Grissom. Jack tells her not to worry that if he thought Dent actually might be able to touch Carl, he, Jack, would have killed Dent by now. So... We learn that Alicia is uh, technically a girlfriend of Carl Grissom, and she tells Jack that if Carl finds out about them, he'd have Jack killed. So a little something-something on the side they're they're having. Uh, But Jack tells her not to flatter herself that Jack is too valuable to Carl. And besides, Carl doesn't know about their affair, but he decides it's time to jet. Yeah, not, not... of a vital scene, but we were introduced to Jack Napier. We're introduced to Alicia Hunt and the fact that um, they're having an affair and that Alicia's boyfriend is a pretty powerful crime boss in the city. It kind of describes Jack's arrogance. Yeah. Because Jack, I mean, you know, into chapter two, you find out exactly how arrogant he is. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, that just really kind of dripped off the page that, you know, she's got expensive junk, but she's with me. So at least she's got good taste in men. <laughs> and I mean, it also kind of describes his character, how he's, and he's in an immaculate suit. He's, he's got a top coat. He's to the nines. And he also um, feels that he's untouchable by, uh, from, from Carl Grissom that we know that he's Jack's not top man, that Carl Grissom is his boss or is over him in some way. But Jack feels that he's too important to Carl. So th- that betrayal will definitely play into things. Of course, we'll get there soon enough. So the next scene, we're introduced to an Alexander Knox, who we learn is a reporter for uh, the Gotham Times, was it? Gotham Globe? Yeah, um, Gotham, Gotham Globe. The Gotham Globe. So he's approaching a crime scene, and he hears Lieutenant Eckhart talking to a police medic. Knox takes the opportunity to eavesdrop because Edcart has a history of not giving him the scoop. Here's a bit of the dialogue. Uh, the medic says, You know what the guy says he saw? No, let me guess, Eckhart wheezed. A gigantic, menacing supernatural form in the shape of a bat? That's it, was the other man's astonished reply. What are they seeing up there? Eckhart dismissed it. They're all drinking Drano. Yum. Pretty sure that would make you crazy. I'm pretty sure it'd make you dead. So, but that's all Knox gets because the lieutenant notices him. And since his cover is blown anyway, Knox comes out of hiding to talk to the lieutenant and the medic. Knox mentions that this is the eighth bat sighting in under a month and that he's heard the commissioner has even opened a file on it. And while Knox tries to glean information from what few sentences the lieutenant gives him, a bloodied man in torn clothes is dragged past by a couple of cops. His smile, twitching, and giggling have Knox wondering if maybe he was drinking Drano. So Knox presses Eckhart a bit, but as usual, the police lieutenant stonewalls him and walks away. But Knox has something even better than a quote from the lieutenant. He has an eyewitness and the knowledge that, for some reason, the cops don't want the story of the bat getting out. So uh, the final paragraph is, when he was done, the human bat was going to be better known than Pee Wee Herman. And whatever the police were covering up would be splashed across the front page. Pee-wee! Yeah, we have a pop culture reference of, of the times in here. But I, I find it funny that Pee-wee Herman's mentioned in here because he's also in Gotham. He has a, a small role in Gotham. Yeah. So never would have thunk that he would be so connected to the Batman. But there you go. You know, they mentioned Bruce Wayne being a millionaire. Newer adaptations change that to billionaire. I don't think he'd have the same bottomless pockets with millions as he does with billions. I mean, he'd probably blow it all on the, on the Batplane. What's that called? The Batwing? Yeah, I think I think that would eat up a lot of his funds right there. I, it makes me wonder how, like, I probably need to read the comics more mm-hmm. about this. Um, okay, outside of the Christopher Nolan Batman movies where Wayne Enterprises just happens to have a R&D division that's got all this neat gadgetry in it. Where, Lucius Fox. <laughs> yeah. It, Batman, I, I, Bruce Wayne's freaking smart, so mm-hmm. does he go down into the Batcave and just start fabricating mm-hmm. everything like is he building that stuff by hand yeah i know he's he's genius but i wonder how far he would get without lucius fox I'm, i've i've not read enough of lucius fox to know how much of a role he plays in the creations of batman's gadgets so I'd i'm sure ba- i'm that. sure like a lot of the, the the smaller hand devices batman you know bruce wayne definitely does and mm-hmm. alfred is extremely good with that stuff too but Need like, your pillow turn, sir. Need a new gadget. I don't know. Follow us. We'll find this out slowly <laughs> yeah. but surely over time. Alfred is a handyman to have around. I tell you what. The poor man, though, doesn't have enough staff around the mansion, I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I've only ever seen him and a gardener. 
so any other notes on chapter one? No, I think that covers chapter one. Chapter two is where you start getting in, into knowing um, a good bit more about some of these characters. Mm-hmm. And again, like the stuff that happens in chapter one, I have no memory of it from the movie. And I think a lot of that I probably wouldn't have realized at the time, the last time I saw it, um, I wouldn't have realized what it meant that they were having an affair behind. Uh, have you not watched it more recently? I have, <laughs> I, I have seen it more recently, but even then, that it's been a minute. It's like I remember the the prologue from the movie. I re- yeah, I remember that. So yeah, I, I definitely need to watch it again. Why do you think superheroes are so important? People need heroes because they need somebody to inspire them, something to aim for, somebody to try to be like. One is the man of tomorrow, with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. The other, the caped crusader carrying out a solemn vow to spend his life warring on all criminals. For seven decades, they've been the world's finest heroes. They've teamed on radio, comics, newspapers, animation, and more. And now, they're teaming up for a podcast. To the Batmobile, let's go. Up, up, and away! Atomic batteries, turbines to speed. Superman and Batman celebrates more than 70 years of the world's finest team with randomly chosen stories featuring the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes and one podcast together. Find it today at greatcrypton.com. So chapter two synopsis. Jack Napier waits in front of a stretch limo with his right-hand man, Bob Hawkins. I do remember Bob. And so they're waiting for Lieutenant Eckhart's arrival. So when the lieutenant arrives, Jack tosses him a sandwich bag full of cash, which he tucks into the uniform jacket. Let's see. So Jack tells Eckhart that Harvey Dent is sniffing around one of their companies. And Eckhart tells Jack that he answers to Carl Grissom, not to psychos. Jack manhandles Eckhart a bit, but Eckhart manages to bring his police-issue gun out. So the two are basically at a standoff, but Jack is happy to note the bit of control over the cop. Jack and Bob climb into the limo. Jack laughing all the while, so a little bit of a precursor to the laugh, uh, while Eckhart watches on with a strange smile that Jack ultimately ultimately dismisses. Jack is unable to hear Eckhart's words, and where have you been spending your nights, handsome? Letting us, the readers, know that Eckhart knows about the affair between Grissom's girlfriend and Jack Napier. ruh ruh George. Mm. There, he's going to cause some trouble. Yeah, not a whole lot to say about that. I don't know why I remember Bob. He does, he barely even speaks in the movie, does he? Do you remember Bob? Kind of had like a hat and like shaggy hair. Yes, I do remember him. Just, I do. It was, yeah, I, I very much do now. His face just came back to me. I, I don't know why I remember him. So the next scene, there's a banner announcing the 200th anniversary of Gotham City Festival. Mayor Borg waves, waves for Dent and Gordon to follow. And of course they do because... Resistance is futile. Sorry, I had to get a Borg joke in there (laughs) with a name like that. Uh, The mayor has been taking them around the city to see various sites to make sure everything will be ready for the festival. 
And right now, Mayor Borg is taking them to personally inspect the final construction of the reviewing stand in Gotham Square. The mayor excitedly tells them about the plans, and he doesn't care how much debt it causes. That's fiscally responsible. And which cracks me up because Dent, like, he just straight points out that they're like $350,000 in the red. Yeah, which meant just something different. Just for the parade. And, mm-hmm. I mean, that, that, and keep in mind the time period. Yeah, this is at best 1989 standards. And at worst, you know, they're, they're doing like an alternate 30s, 40s, 50s era. So $350,000 means a lot more than... Millions. It does today. Millions. So Dent tries to be the voice of reason, talking about bankruptcy and the effect it might have on Borg's ratings, but his concerns fall on deaf ears. So, yeah, it kind of sounds a little bit like uh, Gordon and Dent are following around a toddler with power um, who's excited about the parade and is throwing money at it and doesn't care what the ramifications might be. Which also furthers the whole point of uh, the mayor being a, p- a pure politician who's just looking to get that face recognition. And also, he, I'm sure he's probably in the pocket of the mob. Mm-hmm. Which we, we find out later that he is, indeed. Mm-hmm. So the next scene, we're back to Knox entering the newsroom to see reporters gathered around Bob the cartoonist's desk. When the others see him approaching, and I, I vaguely remember this scene, I kind of do too, and but this just—I feel like this is a really good scene because it just shows what kind of a human being Knox is. Yeah. So when the others see him approaching, they begin to tease him about his story of the bat creature. The cartoonist has sketched a joke drawing of a crude rodent creature with the words, "Have you seen this man?" Knox tells them how funny they aren't, and that it's Pulitzer Prize material. And then he goes into his office, but someone is already in there. So staring at her legs like a 16-year-old in rut, he greets her with, Hello, legs. This is when Knox and we the readers meet Vicki Vale. She brushes off Knox's further crude comments, such as, If you want me to pose nude, you're going to need a longer lens. (sighs) Again, Knox, this is jokes you tell with friends, not with someone you're just meeting. Now, that being said, just from this, we can tell what kind of a... a it kind of sets up the time period, I guess. Well, not just the, yeah, it, it it sets up that 30s time period, which is definitely something a guy would say. I mean, a, a crude, ill-mannered guy, mm-hmm. but a guy would say to a, a girl. But it also puts Vicki Vale in perspective. <clears throat> she knows how men of this time period are, and she uh, she puts her legs right up on that table like it, like a beacon. So she's putting him off guard. By showing him a little something, something to yeah. get what she wants, because she knows that that he she can uh, kind of uh, get him off balance, if it were, and it definitely works. Mm-hmm. So Knox assumes that he's seen her stuff in Vogue and Cosmo, but Vale shows her portfolio of humanitarian photos of war torn parts of the world. For some reason, I really remember the scene in that in the movie where she's uh, showing pictures of. Yeah, she's like a very very serious photographer. Yeah. Which I, I like that. So Vale tells Knox that she wants to find the wildlife of Gotham City. Wildlife like bats. Knox, assuming that this is another prank, asks who sent her. But Vale soon convinces him that, that his words and her pictures are Pulitzer material. And this wins Knox over. Thrilled that someone believes him, Knox tells her that Gordon has a file on the bat, but he can't reach him. Vale tells him that Gordon will be at Bruce Wayne's benefit, to which she just happens to have an invitation. 
Nox becomes her plus one. So again, a, a scene that I don't remember except for her showing the portfolio of her work to Knox. For some reason, that scene. Uh, I'm sure that uh, Gardner expanded on that whole scene. Mm-hmm. I, I feel I feel like he he uh, he expanded just to really hammer home the personalities of mm-hmm. these two. Perhaps it'll be interesting when we watch the the movie to see where it lines up and where he kind of tweaked it a little bit. Because I, I feel like she's career, she's very very career driven, mm-hmm. and Knox is also very career driven, but also a jackass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's, I think it's mostly surface jackassery. I don't think it's. I, I, I just kind of get that from him that it's just like, oh, this is what's expected of me to act like this, but really I'm not. Well, it's also I mean Gotham is supposed to be 30s and 40s, if anything, and not just aesthetic, but also in the way things kind of run. Mm-hmm. So that type of personality would be prevalent. Anything else to add before we go on to the next scene? No, I, I, uh, I, th- I really, uh, Knox and Vale, I think become fast friends. So the next scene for the first time we meet the Carl Grissom that we've been hearing about, he's standing in a penthouse office, pondering on what to do with a problem like Harvey Dent. The mayor is a fool, which is precisely why Grissom keeps him in office. So there we have uh, Mm -hmm. confirmation that the mayor is bought. Gordon is a bit more trouble, but half of the GCPD are on Grissom's payroll. But Dent refuses to be bought. Grissom is accompanied by Jack Napier and Luce, a guy with legal and financial experience. Grissom asks Luce what would happen if Dent connects them to Axis Chemical. And Luce replies that if that happens, they're dead and buried. Jack suggests that they break into the Axis offices and trash any incriminating documents. Grissom thinks it a good idea and tells Jack to handle it personally. Jack, shuffling his ever-present deck of cards, turns over a card. Grissom notices that for once it isn't a Jack, but a Joker with a bullet hole in the middle of his face. And this is the first time that I equated, like, oh yeah, Jack, Jack is a card. Joker. Okay, I see, I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> it was early, leave me alone. The elevator opens and Alicia exits the elevator, arms full of shopping bags. And for some reason, I I remember this strongly in the movie. Grissom asks her to wait in the other room. The men finish up and begin to leave. Jack lingers to ask Grissom to send another person, complaining about the fumes in the chemical plant. And I think some of Gardner's experience with living near the Kodak company may have come to that. That was exactly what came to mind <laughs> yeah. when you said he lived in it near the Kodak plant. I was like, well, that explains that whole this whole scene yeah. right here. <laughs> Grissom says he's his number one man, and he'll trust only him. So Jack leaves, and as uh, and we the readers learn that Eckhart has indeed informed Grissom of the affair between Jack and Alicia. So he he knows. Not just that, it it feels like Grissom is just trying to take care of a thorn in his side. Maybe Jack's a little too full of himself. Which you get by the way he talks about his own personal appearance, how Alicia says that he's next in line for the throne, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Well, Grissom obviously doesn't think he's next in line for the throne Mm -hmm. by the way he's talking about him. Yeah, uh, because Jack had kind of said that, oh, even if Grissom finds out He's too important for Grissom to to act against him. And we're, we're learning that that's not the case, that Grissom um, is going to be sending him there for a reason and that he's going to deal with Alicia later. They're in trouble. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, Grissom strikes me as a type that would just, he wouldn't just pick 
a girl to you know, wait in the other room kind of thing. He'd do that to anybody. It, yeah. Like, I, I mean, he probably is the type that, like, women are... Uh, arm trophies. Arm trophies, mm-hmm. yeah. Like, so I think that's how he... Possessions, really. Yeah, he kind of Napier, described her as looking well, good on his arm. Yeah, Napier does that, too. But mm-hmm. Gr- Grissom's probably the same type. But Grissom also is the type that, like, it doesn't matter who it is walking in that door. If he's, you know, working an angle, mm-hmm. he's going to put them where they need. Especially the girl that walks in that's cheating on him with his number one lieutenant yeah. about to be... To the fact that he's keeping his cool during this time shows how, how in control he is. He kind of... I, I don't know much about uh, Falcone except for, uh, like, in... in Gotham for right now, but I know he's a longtime crime boss in Gotham City. So what I get from the t- television series Gotham, and they pronounce his name Falcone there, but Falcone, he's been in power for a long time for a reason. He plays it cool, he's intelligent, and he's not reactionary. He'll get revenge, but it's after it's simmered for a while and he's planned it out. So I kind of get that a little bit from this Grissom fellow. So he knows, and rather than just offing Alicia and Jack right then and there, you know, he, he's just like, okay, I'm going to let you take care of this problem with access chemicals for me. At the same time, I'm going to deal with you. Yeah. So, so I mean, that, 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 that's how chapter two wraps up with Grissom kind of setting Jack up to be where uh, being taken care of and having Lieutenant Eckert, one of the dirty cops, kind of be in on it because I, I jack definitely rubbed eckert the wrong way and it's hard to tell how long eckert had this information on jack you know he he knew and as soon as jack started becoming a thorn in his side he's like you know what screw you and he goes to the boss it feels like it's a world of people having information on each other but holding on to it until just the right moment yeah until that card needs to be played but isn't isn't that noir fiction in a nutshell? Oh yeah, and that that's why that that's one thing I really love about I guess older portrayals of Batman. I mean, it's nice seeing him punch the person that needs to be punched, but I I prefer the more detection aspect of Batman. I want to yeah. I want to see him get clever and you know figure things out and take that information that he's gathering. Which granted, he might punch someone to get the information. Takes that information he's gathering and uses it interesting ways yeah and he is a protector even when it's someone like the joker or some other uh criminal element if that person needs saving he'll still do it mm-hmm. so that's it's a, how many times has he saved the joker over the years <clears throat> right more times than he'd probably even like to yeah remember he throws the he's more apt to throw them in arkham asylum mm-hmm. than he is to arkham probably has to be like one of the most heavily like <laughs> maximum security type mental institutions you could possibly imagine. I wonder if Gotham City has a higher medical insurance rate because of Batman tax. Like he they know that he's gonna find people and throw them in, in the mental asylum. So like, oh we need to we're going to raise your premiums because you got Batman running around your city. <laughs> yes. But that's okay. I, I can just I can just picture the insurance companies doing that. <laughs> But Bruce Wayne and his humanitarian efforts might kind of counteract that a little bit. So, you know, interesting. Well, yeah, he'd probably buy the insurance companies. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I loved about... Um, Wayne Insurance. <laughs> that's what I loved about um, Justice League, um, where he saves... Uh, oh, what's her name? Martha Clark's 
uh, what? It's Clark Kent. What's his name? Clark Kent. So he saves Martha Kent's house. You just forgot that. Superman. <laughs> Superman. <laughs> so he he saves her house, and uh, Clark kind of asks him how he did that. He's like, well, I, "I bought the bank." <laughs> And I just love that aspect. Like he's, he knows he's rich as all get out, and he doesn't brag about it. But sometimes he just does a little sly, like, eh, eh. See what I did there? Anyway, what's your superpower? I'm rich. <laughs> I know it's a hokey line, but it's one of my favorites. And that car that they they built for that scene, because I think it's a. I can't remember which company built it, but they built a custom car for uh, the character Bruce Wayne to drive in that movie. It's pretty smooth. It was slick. Yeah. Well, that's about it for the prologue and the first two chapters. So, closing thoughts. I can't wait till we get to some Bruce action. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, I I like it, though. I, I... To be honest, from what I remember, I like it better than the movie. Because, like most things, it gives these characters a little bit of time to breathe, and you get more of a feel of who they are and what they're doing. Yeah. So let's see. So there's. let's figure out like how many chapters we want to do for the next... We can probably do three, four, and five. That sounds good. Yeah, so for... The next episode, we're going to cover chapters three, chapter four, and chapter five of... The novelization of the 1989 Batman. And we should get into some really, really juicy Batman action with the next few chapters. Mm-hmm. So thank you again for listening to Batman Books, The Dark Knight and Prose. You can find me on Twitter at BatmanBooks underscore DKP or an email at DarkNightProse at gmail.com. So, uh, again, for the next episode, we'll discuss chapters three, four, and five. If you have any feedback, comments, or thoughts about the upcoming three chapters, please send those along. And happy reading! Batman is copyrighted to DC Comics and was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. Yeah, I, I saw the uh, 89 Batman. I can't remember what year Dick Tracy came out. Do you remember? It had to have been very, very close to yeah, that. Yeah, I can't uh, remember if it was right before or right after, but I really have this strong love of, you know, like noir and, and diesel punk type things. And I think those two movies really set the scene for me. And over the past few years, um, that kind of came back. And you might hear a couple things, uh, listeners. Jeej has a pair of adorable kittens running around the house, so <laughs> he's kind of, he's a dealing, moving one now. She found my box that I brought my equipment in, so you know, kit, hey, kittens and boxes. Loves cats. <laughs> everybody loves cats. I see. I, I feel like I, I fell into uh, comic books. It, it was my, the same with uh, Dungeons and Dragons because it, it all happened within the same time period. I don't know if it was because of pop culture in the late '80s or I, it might have been my friends because like we went to a rural school and like she said that there were 30, 40 kids. I think my graduating class at that there I didn't graduate from there, but my graduating class would have been something like seventy kids. Mm-hmm. So really, really small. 
And, uh, I mean, like, the quote-unquote nerdier people kind of hung out together. But I don't... There might have been, like, two of us into comics. And uh, if it tells you anything, in seventh grade, uh, half my locker was nothing but comic issues. I wish I'd hung around with you during those years, because, yeah, I, I didn't have... I had a nerdier friends, but not the comic book kind. And I think I really would have latched on to that. Well, I was kind of just grabbing anything that interested me like that. I, that was the year I got into scale modeling, too. Mm-hmm. I, but it wasn't in the form of, you know, regular scale modeling. I got into, um, like, RC airplane building. Oh, I remember those. Which didn't last very long because I suddenly, like, I, I, I was more interested in the build than the flying like RC stuff doesn't interest me at all today, mm-hmm. but like the actual like scale model building still does interest me. Yeah. So do you remember in I think they were probably came in cereal boxes. You're talking when you're talking about like the the models for some re- reason that reminded me of like the little styrofoam airplanes that would come. I do. And they had the little plastic tips on the nose. I used to love those things. They did those in in two different. Kinds. They did the, the styrofoam ones, and then they did the balsa wood ones. I mean, the extreme example of the, you know, Stephen King with Derry, Maine. Uh-huh. Yeah, that, like, him living in Maine influenced all of his books. <laughs> yeah, all, but I, when I lived in New Hampshire, there was just such a vibe up there. It, I don't, it feels old, and it feels, I don't know, something dark about it, and I'm not sure how to put it. And when I go down south, that feels old, but it, f- it has a different feel to it. I might be, I don't want to get too woo-woo here, but it just feels like different parts of the country have their own different vibes. They do. Yeah, but then they like do. when yeah. I come back to Ohio, I don't feel it because it's my norm. So Ohio has a completely different vibe. And uh, yeah. <laughs> out of any comic, I think one of the reasons Batman excels is because Batman, out of almost any comic universe maybe spider-man batman has the most for lack of better terms colorful mm-hmm. roster of villains oh yeah he's got some great villains i mean the only one that i can think of right next to is spider-man because okay when you think batman you think we got the joker you got scarecrow you got bane mm-hmm. you've got mr freeze you've got uh the Riddler, you've got Catwoman, you, I mean, the Penguin, you've got this huge cast. And then like, even amazing. like the B level, like the cal- Calendar yeah. Man and, and Mad Hatter is cool. Yeah, and like just this fantastic roster. Of, and like when you say their names, they come to, to life in your mind. Spider-Man is the only one I can think of that's next to him with mm-hmm. that because you've got Mysterio, you've got... Uh, the Green Goblin. The Green Goblin. And Doc Goblin, Doc Ock. Uh, Doc Ock, you've got uh, the Lizard, you've... Um, the Sandman. I'm trying to think of the rest of this. The, the Sinister Six. Um, Mysterio. Mm-hmm. The Changeling. A few of those those villains flip flop between Spider Man and Daredevil. It's kind of it's annoying. Kingpin. Kingpin flips flops. Kingpin. Well, yeah, Kingpin's kind of all over the place in there too. Uh, and then Venom, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, which that was a good movie. If you haven't seen that, I did see it. It was fun. Thanos. I'm. He, I think he just looks too cartoony for me to really think of him. Like, oh, he's an awesome villain. He, like, legit looks like he does in the comics. Yeah, which which is good. Um, but some things don't translate as well from onto screen. Who plays Knox? Do you remember? I don't remember his name. I can picture his face. Okay, because I, I, I know Kim Basinger played plays uh, Vicky Vale, but I can't remember Knox at all. I can't even remember uh, his face. 
I mean, in reality, we could probably IMDB this really fast. Yeah. I'm not worried about it. Too bad, like, we don't have, like, a computer, like, right here with my hands literally on it. That, you know, I'm not typing. I'm just kind of stalling for time. Of course not. We're doing this on four track. Oh, yeah. Batman. <laughs> We're just talking about Batman. Oh, the 1989 Batman on IMDB. Let's see here. <laughs> yeah. Michael Keaton. Let's see. No big reveal. Robert Wool, is that how you pronounce the W U H L? Okay, yeah. It's one of those guys from the eighties and nineties that is in a bunch of movies, never a main actor, yeah. always a side character. Like a good character actor. But he's extremely good at what he does, and I've seen him in a million movies. Yeah, like, like he he's just like one of those actors who is like, Oh, I know his face, but And honestly, those those guys uh made a lot of late 80s and early 90s movies mm-hmm. or even just all 80s but you know mid to late 80s uh it was the side characters that are now a lot of those actors are getting new roles because of a lot of their side yeah. gigs a lot of actors start in in like commercials and things like that i mean you ever seen vin diesel selling street sharks no but yeah. i need to Man, my my uh, aesthetic would be a very 30s or early 40s looking vehicle, but made electric. Yeah, with big range. But they had electric back then. Ooh. I mean, there were electric trucks in like 1910. Have you ever seen the glow in the dark tires they used to have? Or they? Let I me mean, pull it up real quick. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. I think it was. Not to get completely off tangent. <laughs> hey. Tires. Yeah, look at this. This was a thing. It ended up not selling because, for one, it was priced out of a lot of people's um, range, and the tires themselves didn't. That's bizarre. Yeah, those were um, 1961. Yeah, so they were like clear, kind of like a clear plastic that were illuminated. Man, can you imagine seeing that going down the road? I'm rich. 